I really appreciate the opportunity to come today and to bring God's word to you. Uh, when you come into town to plan a church, the first thing that doesn't usually happen is pastors call you and say, would you like to come preach at our church? And so I'm really thankful that Paul is a man that's not out just to build and preserve his own kingdom, like he mentioned, but he is, is kingdom-minded uh, and is willing to be supportive of what we are doing. Uh, the intro was pretty true to life. When we were dating, I was always known as Haley's boyfriend, and since we've been married, I'm always referred to as Haley's husband. Um, Haley and I have three kids, and when we found ourselves in ministry with three kids, we said, well, what are we going to do with all our spare time now? And we said, well, why don't we plant a church? And so we're here. And then we said, well, we have three kids and we're planting a church. What are we going to do with the rest of our free time? And we said, well, let's have another child. So please pray for me. Please. <laughs> we read verses 10 through 20, but I'm going to focus in on verse 17. Take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, if we were fully aware of what is really happening when we come into your presence, they would be handing out helmets and life preservers at the front door, giving us pre-flight instructions in case we have a head-on collision with the living God. We know that you are here. We don't always know why we're here, We've come in here with a lot of worries, a lot of struggles, a lot of burdens, a lot of questions and problems, sin struggles, doubts. Lord, we pray that you would meet each of those needs and more. Open our ears, open our eyes. Help us to see Jesus and him only by faith. I pray that I would become less and that you would become greater. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you seen this new TV show on Spike TV called The Deadliest Warrior? I wouldn't recommend everything on Spike TV, okay? Please. But it takes two of the fiercest warriors that civilization has ever known, and it pits them against each other in a head-to-head combat to see, in the end, who is the deadliest warrior. They use... You know, all the latest in computer graphic design, they use all the military uh, history, they use uh, modern science and everything to, to analyze every aspect of these warriors' combat skills, and then the show culminates in this kind of virtual, simulated, head to head combat to see which man is left standing, which warrior from history is declared the deadliest warrior. Some of their showdowns have included a pirate versus a knight, Taliban versus an IRA. That's not a retirement account. That's a, uh, ask your parents. It's, it's Vi- they had a Viking versus a samurai, Green Beret versus Spetsnaz. Ask your parents what a Spetsnaz is. And a ninja versus a Spartan. You know, if they were taking requests, I'd love to see something like you know, Sarah Palin versus Nancy Pelosi or something. Just, you know, who is the deadliest warrior? When it comes to spiritual warfare, there is no match for the Christian. 
when we are clothed in the armor of God, nothing can hurt us. We are, in a sense, the deadliest warrior. We are armed and dangerous. If I would have had a kilt and some blue war paint, I would have worn it today. Now, the the long, sensitive, but strong ponytail would have taken me a lot longer to grow. But even the title to my sermon, I bet, sounds strange on your ears, doesn't it? To come to church, to hear Christians called to be armed and dangerous. It just seems unseemly for Christians. I hope I can explain what I mean by it, though. I'm not calling you to be offensive or rude or violent or mean or smug or self-righteous or any of that. We're talking about spiritual warfare. Like Paul says, it's not against flesh and blood that we wrestle, but against spiritual forces of evil. In the passage we read, there is a list of spiritual armor, the whole armor of God. You have all of these things like the shield and the breastplate and the belt and the shoes. All of it's defensive, it's protective against the attacks of an enemy. But then we come to the sword of the spirit, and it's the first and only offensive weapon that we have listed here. It's used to strike back. It's used to be on the move. And the message I want to share with you today is arm yourselves with the word of God and you will become more than conquerors in Christ. Arm yourselves with the word of God and you will become more than conquerors in Christ. When we are armed with the sword of the spirit, we're dangerous as Christians. Not destructive, not out of control, but dangerous. Dangerous to the status quo, dangerous to the forces of evil, the kingdom of darkness. When Christians are dangerous, sinners are safe. When Christians are dangerous, the world is blessed. When Christians are dangerous, the kingdom of darkness is pushed back. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not, I'm thinking about building my church. I can if I can get enough people together to do it. Or I can if Satan doesn't overcome me. What did he say? I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The picture is of gates set up against an enemy city. And the advancing army is the one on the move going towards the gates. And come right up against it. Which means that some of us in the kingdom... And maybe all of us at times are called to be right there on the front lines of the kingdom. And we should never be there without the word of God, the sword of the spirit. You know, in the early church, Christians were referred to by the world as these men who have turned the world upside down. Wouldn't it be great if God raised up men and women in our day that it was said of them, we need to watch out because these Christians are turning the whole world upside down. I truly believe that God is calling us in our day to advance as a church, as the church. We've had enough Christian retreats. The church in America, for the most part, folks, is languishing. We are hiding. We are on the defensive. 
We keep it in private because people tell us that American modes of civility do not allow you to bring your faith into the public sphere. We don't want to be seen as intolerant or narrow-minded or antiquated. I wish God would raise up more men and women who are like David's mighty men. You know, the stuff in the Old Testament isn't just there to tell you what people spent their time doing until Jesus came. Paul says all that stuff in the Old Testament is meant for us. Read Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. He says that stuff's written for our instruction. David's kingdom foreshadowed Jesus' kingdom. David was a bad man in today's language. And I don't mean bad and bad, but bad in the good way. He's the guy who, when he was about 16, when all of these seasoned soldiers were sitting there biting their nails, afraid because of this punk Goliath, says, who is this guy who comes against God like this? I'll fight him. And God changed the course of history, redemptive history, because one young man was willing to take a stand for Christ and for God. History changes on people who refuse to sit down or to refuse to be quiet or to back up or to run. History changes when a little African-American woman says, you know what, I don't think I'm sitting in the back of the bus today. One of David's mighty men, there were three among the 30 that were just the baddest of the bad. One of them jumped down in a pit to kill a lion just because it was snowing that day and there was nothing else to do. One of them wielded a spear against 800 Philistines and won. One of them was running. They were all retreating, scared, running with the whole army. And it says there was a barley, a field of barley, and for some reason that the scripture writer doesn't say, this guy decides to turn around and take his stand and says, I'm not running anymore. You know what the scripture says? The Lord worked a mighty victory that day. I think that what I'm saying is stirring deep inside of you something. That God is calling us to rise up in love, but in faith. To believe that God wants to advance his kingdom in our day and among the next generation. That's what it means to take up the sword of the spirit. John Wesley once said, give me 100 men who fear only sin and want only God. And he said, I don't care if they're ministers or if they're lay people, I'll take those 100 men and change the world. Jesus did it with 12. People who fear nothing but sin and want nothing but God, who know they have one life to live, And that somehow in the vanity and futility and frustration of living in an imperfect and fallen world, somehow you and I can leave fingerprints and footprints behind and monuments to the grace of God and to the kingdom of God here in this life. The famine Amos prophesied, I believe, is plaguing our land. It's not a famine of bread, Amos said, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord, Amos 8, verse 11. I want to talk with you this morning about arming yourselves with the word of God. If you're not convinced yet, I want to give you three reasons. And they all relate to the enemies or the opponents that we as Christians face in life. The first 
is the world. Arm yourselves with the word of God because only the word of God can overcome the world. Now, what do I mean by the world? I don't mean people. Okay? Don't go hitting people over the head with your Bible or quoting scripture, you know, in a rude way. The world is this philosophical air that we breathe every day as we go about our daily lives. It's cultural water we swim in like fish. How often do you think fish think about the water they're swimming in? How often throughout your day do you go, wow, the air has kind of got a sweetness to it today, or it's damp, or it's, it's just there. We take it for granted. The world described by the Bible is this whole way of living, the whole culture and society man creates apart from God and often against God. And so as you and I venture out into the world in our daily lives, we encounter a culture and a society that is often hostile to God, to his truth, and to his Christ. And we have to be armed with the word of God when we go out. William Gurnall says in his spiritual classic, many of you have read, I'm sure, The Christian in Complete Armor, he said God's army overcomes every enemy by one of two ways, conversion or destruction. The word of God is the sword which affects both. It has two edges. In other words, the word of God either destroys false belief or it brings new life to dead sinners. Be careful. Hear me clearly, please. I'm not saying to go out and fight somebody. We should desire nobody harm. Christ taught us to love our enemies, as you know, and to bless those who curse us. It's not against flesh and blood that, that we wrestle. But there are a couple reasons why the word of God overcomes the world. It's because, one, the word of God never becomes obsolete. It never becomes outdated. Almost every weapon in history at some point, because of technological advances, becomes outdated. I mean, imagine being the first guy that shows up to a gunfight with a bow and arrow. Say, well, this is useless. The word of God never becomes outdated. Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not. It's indestructible. It's sharper than anything else it encounters. Anything else that comes against the word of God is sliced in two across of it. It's harder and sharper than anything else. It never becomes irrelevant. It never becomes useless. It is timeless truth for every time. The world changes, but God's word never changes. Secondly, it sets prisoners free from sin. When Jesus came in his ministry, he came preaching, it said. And he said that Isaiah 61, that passage, described his ministry, that he fulfilled it. That he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those that are bound. The word of God is like a key to the prison of sin that sets people free when we use it. Like Charles Wesley, I'm so sorry to quote two Wesleys in the same sermon. I disagree with their theology, but love their methods. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. You know this from that great old hymn. Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
Furthermore, the word of God carries with it the power of God. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would the apostle Paul, the world's greatest missionary, ever have to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Maybe because it's, he was tempted at times to be ashamed of the gospel. And he said, this is why I'm not ashamed, because it's the power of God for salvation for those who believe. He doesn't say that it brings power or it points to the power of God or it talks about the power of God. He says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And it sets people free when we preach it. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. Listen to what the scriptures say the word of God can accomplish. Listen to its power. It brings faith to its hearers, Romans 10. It gives new spiritual birth, 1 Peter 1. It nourishes the young believer like milk to an infant, 1 Peter 2. It fortifies the mature believer with solid food, Hebrews 5. It's the foundation on which the church is built, Ephesians 2.20. And it has this power because it's the sword of the Spirit. Not because you hold it, or not because you're intelligent, not because you're persuasive or good-looking or anything. It's the Spirit of God that makes the Word of God effective and powerful. The Holy Spirit comes and speaks in and by the Word to bless sinners, to set them free, to make them alive. It destroys fortresses of unbelief. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 that Our weapons are not weapons of the flesh. We don't carry real weapons. We carry spiritual weapons that have divine power to demolish strongholds. In other words, to bust through walls of unbelief. He says, we destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The word of God breaks through walls and barriers of unbelief and then the spirit comes rushing in like an invading army to capture And to subdue us to the loving lordship of Christ. There's a new school of atheism today. You know, I kind of miss the old atheists. Because they kind of viewed religion as just this antiquated thing of the past. And, you know, as we became more secularized and more advanced. Listen to the arrogance in this statement. As we become more advanced and intellectual and educated in society, religion will just naturally fall away. The new atheists have learned that is not true. The world is becoming more secular and more religious all at the same time. Christianity is exploding all over the world except Western Europe and North America. Exploding. And this troubles the new group of atheists. Some people say we should call them anti-theists, not just atheists. Listen how, uh, if you've heard of Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, these guys, they're the ones who are writing and leading the movement. Dinesh D'Souza explains that atheists no longer want to be tolerated. They want to monopolize the public square and to expel the Christians from it. They want to discredit the factual claims of religion. They want to convince the rest of society, listen to this, that Christianity is not only mistaken but evil. They blame religion for the crimes of history and for the ongoing conflicts in the world today. In short, they want to make religion, and especially Christianity, disappear from the face of the earth. They view God as a child abuser for putting his son to death. They view him as a murderer, and they view him as a tyrant. And a lot of us go, how do you even start 
to interact with that in a loving, humble way, which we have to. You know, Charles Spurgeon once compared the word of God to a lion. You know how you defend a lion? You let him out of his cage. Well, you first, you stand behind the cage and you let him out of the cage. We hear atheists talk like this and we start biting our nails, getting nervous, going, oh man, God, what are you going to do? And we start defending the word of God and act as if God can't defend himself with his word. If we just let God's word out. You know, the best way to teach somebody about the effectiveness as a, of a lion is not to give a PowerPoint presentation and show its anatomy and all of this stuff. It's to go on a safari, put a lion in the wild, and watch him do his work. And some of you are thinking, God is a lion? I've never thought of it that way. If we share the word of God, if we live it, you know, sometimes I think we are so ineffective in our evangelism because we are so unlike the Lord we proclaim. Or we are so unpassionate about the Lord we proclaim. If, if what I believe is not the defining, driving ex- reality and motive for my life, why should anyone else look into it? My second big point is this. Arm yourselves with the word of God because only it can conquer the enemy. Big E. This is the one, Satan. Satan is not a little guy in a red suit with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. Peter says your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. Revelation calls him the great dragon, that ancient serpent. We have a real spiritual enemy, beloved. But we don't need to be afraid because Christ has mortally wounded him and will ultimately defeat him when he returns. He is already defeated. Christ is the one who has taken up the word of God. Like Psalm 45 said, and has wrote out, ridden out victoriously in the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. The word of God helps us against the enemy by helping us to resist the temptations of Satan. You know that story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. He was tempted three times. And what did he say each time? It is written. In the final time, he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written. Temptation can be soul wrenching and agonizing sometimes. It feels like you're being pulled with all the gravitational weight of a black hole. Satan tries to block your way and he moves pieces into place and tries to say, checkmate, I've got you. But when you pull out the word of God, he flees. As Luther's great hymn puts it, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. And I love this part. One little word shall drop him. But sometimes temptation is a little more subtle and deceptive. Satan becomes the mole, the man on the inside. He tries to trick us into God-grieving thoughts or behavior. But again, the word of God can help us to not be overcome or outwitted by the schemes of the enemy. 
Like a radar will be able to pick up every one of his movements and cut him off. The word of God also defeats the lies of the enemy. Listen to the way that Jesus talks about him. Sounds very unpostmodern and very intolerant. He says of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning, has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he's speaking out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. You get the point? You can't trust what Satan says. He's a liar. But the word of God can help us to defeat those lies. For a soldier, it's not enough just to use a sword. Or to have a sword, you need to be trained in it. You have to keep it on you at all times and you have to use it. Each day we're faced with decisions and and truth claims and opinions. And the only way we can sort fact from fiction, good from bad, right from wrong, is to be skilled, like Hebrews 5 says, skilled in the word of righteousness. Where we have trained our powers of discernment to know, excuse me, right from wrong. We have to keep the word of God on us. If your word of God is too big to put in your backpack or your briefcase, get a dagger. Get a small one. The third point I have is that finally arm yourself with the word of God because only it can conquer your own heart. See, I bet half of you up till now, maybe some of you weren't, but some of you might have been getting fired up going, yeah, let's go out there and get those guys. But I saved this point for last. Because if if that's your mindset, you're missing the point. Our own heart needs to be conquered by the word of God. We're able to be tempted because, or Satan can tempt us because we're temptable. We sin because we're sinners. We might be sinners saved by grace, but we are still sinners saved by grace. We struggle and wrestle With sin, like the Israelites in the promised land, there is still a lot of territory in my heart that needs to be conquered and subdued to the loving king of kings. I wear a sport coat and khakis and have a short haircut and all that. I pay my taxes, never, you know, stolen a car or anything like that. But there are parts of my heart that are in rebellion against Christ on a daily basis. And some of you are going... Well, he's just a young guy. He's really excited about the Lord. He hasn't seen enough yet. He'll get, he'll get cooled off in a little while. I've seen enough in seven years of ministry to make me become an atheist. You know, the only reason I'm still here is because of Christ. Because of his word. Because he doesn't give up on me. Because he pursues me in love. He restores me. He equips me and he calls me to get back into the fight, to move forward. He said, the good work I began in you, I began the work, God says, and I will bring it on to completion. The word of God helps us with principles. It's like a compass. It's, it's like guardrails, however you want to think of it. It's like a lamp for your feet. Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure or an old man? Older man, sorry. I was in South Florida for a while. I had to be really careful with 
old jokes or words about using old or elderly. It's always more mature or... But he says, this is how I guard my way. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It encourages with promises. These act like anchors when the storms of life toss us around. Which promises are your favorite in scripture? Which ones can you quote? Which ones are most dear to you? They often make the best swords. It also teaches us with the lives of people. Gives us positive and negative examples. It shows us the consequences of faith and unbelief, of of obedience and disobedience. More importantly, it shows us that we're not the only ones who struggle. And it shows us how God uses broken and infallible people to accomplish his will. The same God who walked with Abraham, who walked with Noah, who walked with David, who walked with Ruth, who walked with Mary, walks with you today. The word of God changes our hearts with power. Psalm 1 talks about the man or the woman that is truly blessed. And it's the one who meditates day and night on God's word. And this person prospers, it says, and everything they do, it's like a tree planted by water. The, the leaves never wither or dry out. It's always producing fruit. But you can't bypass that process. There's no switch God's going to throw in your life. Even the section in Galatians uh, 5 where he talks about being filled with the fruits of the Spirit, the same passage, he says, you've got to sow seeds to the Spirit. God doesn't just throw a switch and poof, you know, apples of the Spirit and oranges of the Spirit start jumping off of you. It's walking with Him on a daily basis, meditating on His Word, seeking Him. Like a cup of tea, we need to steep ourselves. You know, you put a tea bag in a cup of water and just let it steep. And before long, the water starts to take on the textures of the tea. Or if you're a coffee drinker, you know, make the leap of the metaphor. And finally, James says we have to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We need quantity time in the word and we need quality time in the word. Somebody has said whatever goes deep into your heart will go wide into the world. Let the word of God go deep into your heart. The word of God will never truly conquer your heart until you can say, along with this English poet named John Donne, Batter my heart, three-person God. As As yet but knock and breathe, shine and seek to mend. That I may rise and stand, overthrow me and bend your force to break, blow, burn and make me new. Batter my heart, three-person God. I wish I could tell you as a pastor, I get up every day just, you know, jumping out of the bed at 6 o'clock or, you know, whatever, 4 a.m. Looking for my Bible going, I can't wait to find God today. There are times where I go through phases of just being cold and, and numb to the Lord. And if the Lord didn't come back to me in love again and pursue me, I might be lost. I might never come back to him. That's why John Donne says, batter my heart if it gets hard, Lord. Let nothing come in between me and you. Like a castle, lay siege to it until I'm completely yours. 
Our sinful hearts are tricky things and like, an, like a castle at times that need to be conquered by him. And only his word can do that. Taking up the sword of the spirit will make the difference between what Randy Pope has called prevailing churches and precautionary churches. The same goes for Christians, individuals as well. Precautionary churches are ones that kind of never stray outside their comfort zones. They measure everything with the phrase, we have nothing to gain and everything to lose. They ask the question, what if it fails? Prevailing churches, on the other hand, don't view themselves that way. They, they don't view themselves as make-no-waves organizations, but a wartime army engaged in battle. And they measure every decision by, we have everything to gain and nothing to lose. When I went in, was praying about the work of church planting, I found tapes playing in my head going, but what if it fails? But what if it fails? But what if it fails? I started budgeting, you know, and hedging every bet about what if it fails? And then I don't know if it was the spirits nudging or what, but all of a sudden I thought one day, yeah, but what if it actually succeeded? Brothers, sisters, God has not called us to a miserable, lowly life of failure. He's given us a kingdom. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He hasn't left you on this earth for no reason. And he's got purposes for each of us. You don't have to become a pastor, a missionary, or anything like that to serve him and to advance his kingdom in this day. You can do it as a doctor, as a teacher, as a lawyer, as a student, as a mother, staying home with children, whatever he has called you to. Take up the word of God and live for him to the fullest. Because you never know. What if it works? I love the story of Gideon, and I'll close with this. Gideon, we find Gideon threshing out his wheat down in a wine press. A wine press is like a giant bucket, right? And he's down behind the walls doing this, working. Why? So the Midianites don't see him. The Midianites are these roving bands of warriors that come through town and smack everybody around, steal whatever they want, and ride off. And Israel is cowering in fear. I think they're coming. They've got to stay behind the wall. And then all of a sudden an angel appears to him. And, and the angel says, Greetings, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon's response is essentially, Please. And the angel says, no, really, God's calling you to be a mighty man of valor. He says, well, if that's true, why am I sitting here hiding to make lunch? Why are the Midianites slapping us around? Why is Israel in sin? Why is Israel living in unbelief? Why are we always on the defensive and hiding away? My father, I'm a nobody. My, my father's clan is the smallest in Israel. The tribe is the smallest of Israel. You can't use me. I'm a nobody. But the angel, when he greeted him, knew who he was. And he didn't say, greetings, a wimpy loser who will never amount to anything in God's kingdom. And then you know the rest of the story of Gideon. If you don't, go home and read it in the book of Judges. It's an amazing story. 
And I think today the Lord, by standing on this passage, I believe the Lord's saying to us today, greetings, O mighty men and women of valor. The Lord is with you. So let's arm ourselves with the word of God. And let's live life to the fullest for him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom is not for the strong or the wise or, in my case, not even the handsome or the intelligent or the wealthy or even the spiritually good or virtuous. You said it was the poor in spirit to whom you gave the kingdom. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you have not left us, though, unequipped or undefended. That you are for us and therefore who can be against us. And that through you we are more than conquerors. Through you. Lord help us in faith to take up your word once again. Remove from our hearts all the unbelief. For those of us maybe who are disillusioned. That you would restore their sincere faith in you. And in your kingdom. And may you use us mightily to be a blessing. To the lost here in our town. May we share with them humbly and in love your word. May we serve them humbly and in love. May we pray for them humbly and in love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.